Well, I'll tell you, this is another one of those portions of Scripture, my wife knows this happens a lot, that as I'm approaching it, I'm thinking, how am I ever going to get a whole sermon out of that? And it turns out that I'm getting two out of this. This is one of those portions. It's probably actually going to be three, because there's so much in what we're going to look at today, I don't want to rush it. That's a terrible feeling, feeling like I'm not really being faithful to God and not really serving you. So we'll just see, but this is likely to leak over into next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, in this scripture, your son does a startling deed, and then he says a startling truth. As we've learned, this means that he wants to grab us by the collar and give us a good shaking. He wants to make us sit up, listen, pay attention. So we pray, help us to do exactly that. Sit up, listen, pay attention, good and hard. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you missed uh, part one, I trust you've already listened. It's so easy to find our sermons and listen to them by a phone app or online as they are in sermon audio. So here's part two, focusing on verses 20 through 22. These are challenging words, and they will repay a very close look. You'll recognize that they're words that are much used and abused by false teachers, by the word of faith movement, among many others. Although it's interesting, though they refer to these words often, they have yet to move a single mountain by telling it to, and they have yet to curse a single fig tree. Yet they use these words, and these words actually understood truly get to the heart of Jesus' ministry, and for us to the heart of the Christian life. So we'll go through this in two passes, first focusing on understanding the words themselves, and then focusing on how we apply these truths to our lives, and we're going to be very, very practical and specific about that. So let's attend closely first, Roman numeral one, by understanding what Jesus taught in verses 20 through 22. I've translated for you, and when the disciples saw, they marveled, saying, how did that fig tree dry up right away? And in answer, Jesus said to them, amen, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only what was done to the fig tree will you do, but instead, even if to this mountain you say, be picked up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And all things, as many as you may ask in prayer, believing you will receive. What does that mean? Well, let's find out together, and we won't rush it. So, we have first the apostles' question in verse 20, and when the disciples saw, they marveled, saying, how did that fig tree dry up right away? So, what did they see? Well, they saw Jesus speak to a fig tree and curse it, and within 24 hours, it was dried up, blasted from root to branch, to the very leaves that Jesus had noticed. Now, I remind you, Matthew tells these incidents in a topical way. He moves together incidents that actually may happen on consecutive days just so that he can tell the whole topic. Mark, on the other hand, if you were to read Mark chapter 11, you'd see the chronology of these events. So you'd see this. Assuming that the triumphal entry, as we call it, was on Sunday, which is the traditional uh, position, So on Sunday is the so-called triumphal entry. Jesus comes into the temple, looks around, and then leaves the city. Then on Monday, on the way back, he sees this fig tree advertising fruits, 
offering none, and he curses it, and then goes on to have the confrontation in the temple. And then Tuesday, the next day, as they pass by on the way into the city, they see that the fig tree was withered, and they discuss it. So the withering begins on Monday, but within, as I say, 24 hours, it looks as if it has been dead for weeks or months. It's completely dried up. It's a stick. So that's what they saw. Now, what did they ask? Their question was, how did this happen so suddenly? Now, my question to you is, is that the question that you would have asked? (laughs) Seeing this happen, and knowing how unusual it is for Jesus to do something like this, would your question be, how did this happen? Well, you know how it happened. It happened because Jesus said so. You've seen Jesus control nature before, right? You've seen him tell a, a storm to stop, and it stopped, and he stopped the waves on the sea. You've seen him multiply bread and fishes. You know he has that power. You know how this happened. It happened because Jesus said to make it happen. It's not his first time. It's not really the bigger question. What is the bigger question? Why did he do that? It's so uncharacteristic, as we saw last week. It's such an unusual thing for him to do. Why did he do it? But they don't ask that question. So Jesus takes the question that they ask, And he goes to the heart of the matter. He says what he wants to say, teaches them what they need to learn. So let's look at Jesus' answer in verses 21 and 22. And the key, as is usually the case, is context. Number one, context. First of all, note with me, and I should say remember with me, the temple. That was in the start of this story. The temple is set in the middle of a city that is all religiously aflutter with all sorts of religious pomp and circumstances. This is the feast of the year, and everybody's turned out and come from all the lands around and even from foreign lands to be in Jerusalem at this time to worship. And I've got to use the scare quotes. They're there to worship. The, the, the city is packed with worshipers, and the temple is completely staffed with worship leaders with priests and Sadducees and scribes and Pharisees with their broad phylacteries and all of their show and display of their great religiousness. They're loaded everywhere, and in the temple are all the businessmen, the the sellers and the buyers. Everything's just humming, and yet with all this display of religiosity, despite three, four years of ministry throughout Israel, despite previous visits to the temple, they still don't even know who Jesus is. He's been presenting his resume throughout the land, and they still don't even know who he is. And the temple, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, has become a den for robbers. And they're just doing business in there. It's a hub of commerce, not a house of prayer. That's the city. That's the temple. And one of the leaders the people who are to lead this very religious nation in its very religious practices. Well, their response to God's Messiah, to God's Son, is to challenge Him, to challenge Him, to challenge that children are calling His praises. And when He encounters them and when He challenges them, they don't even know basic Scripture. They haven't even thought Scripture through. But they've got all their forms and formalities down pat and in place and working just fine. That's the temple. Secondly, think of the tree. What did we see in the tree? We saw a fig tree loaded with leaves. And what did those leaves mean? Fruit. 
There would be early figs there for someone to eat. That, if there's leaves, there's fruit. That, that's the one thing that they certainly mean. And yet, when Jesus went up to the tree, he found it was all show and only show. There was no fruit and never would be fruit, so he cursed that tree. So, the temple, the tree, so now compare in your mind the two. First, we've got a tree with foliage but no fruit, and we've got a temple with formality but no faith. Because at the heart of the fruit God looked for would be faith. No faith, no fruit. So a tree with foliage but no fruit, a temple with form but no faith. So, having reminded ourselves of the context, now we're ready to come to the core of the matter, capital C-O, I mean, C-O-R-E, not capital, the core, C-O-R-E. So, obviously, I think you can see the comparison between Jerusalem and the fig tree, right? It stands out when we look at it that way, with knowledge of the context. Jerusalem was like the fig tree. It, 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 it was leaves without fruit, and they were show without fruit because they were without faith. The temple should have been a house of prayer. Why? Well, because prayer is a fruit of faith, and it should have been a people of faith. Their father was Abraham, the believer. But instead, without this vital faith, it had been made, instead of a house of prayer, a cave for robbers, because there was no faith to produce that prayer. So the heart of their failure as a people was a lack of true faith. So the disciples, the apostles, and the church that Jesus would build, the church that they would lead, has to be different from that. They have to be not like those leaders, and the people have to be not like those buyers in the temple. And that's the whole point here. So Jesus' message here, what he's saying to the apostles, and what he says to us is, the way you will bear fruit is by faith. And that's his stress. You, you can tell that's his stress because that's an inclusio in this passage, in his answer to them. He starts with faith and he ends with faith. Look again at verse 21. Uh, amen, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will do what? You will do wonders. And all things as many as you ask in prayer believing you'll receive. Now, it's not as obvious in English as it is in Greek, but th those words by faith and believing, it's the same word. It's just a noun and a verb. The, the noun for faith is pistis. The verb for belief is pistuo. Pistis, pistuo. It's the same word. So you could say, if you have faith and do not doubt, and then as many things as you ask in prayer, exercising faith. He starts with faith. He ends with faith. That's the point. You see, by, by, by their lack of faith, the Jewish leaders had nothing to do for God. They could serve God in no way because they lacked faith. And the people who did business with them produced nothing for God because they lacked faith. No faith, no fruit. And so Jesus is saying to the apostles, if you have true faith, you can do anything to serve God. They could do nothing to serve God because they lacked faith. You, however, can do anything, literally anything to serve God if you have faith and do not doubt. 
And so you see now the church that they're going to lead is going to be a house of prayer because it's going to be a house of faith. And faith is the cause of prayer. Prayer is the fruit of faith. Faith is the whole issue. So having looked at it that way, now let's do a bit of a commentary and go word by word, number three in your outline. Commentary, word on word by, on this section, word by word. First, verse 21 deals with faith, doubt, and action. So in answer, Jesus said to them, Amen, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only what was done to the fig tree will you do, but instead, even if to this mountain you say be picked up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. So faith and doubt then, what, what, what is the meaning of those two things? We have to ask and we have to make sure we think biblically because the answer of the vast majority, I would say both outside and inside the church, is wrong. I think if you ask people to define faith, pretty sure, and I've, I've seen proof of this, that the answer would not be a biblical answer. So, of course, we've talked about the, the boy's answer, the, the young boy who said faith is believing what you know ain't so. Okay, we know that's not a good definition of faith. But many Christians would say, well, faith is believing something in the absence of absolute certainty. It's believing something when you don't really have all the evidence or all the proof, and then you, you make up for that gap with faith. And I imagine many people would hear me say that and say, well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, duh, that, that's what faith is. That's exactly what faith is. Not biblically. Biblically, the whole idea of faith, and I'll say this several different ways to, to try my best to get it across, Biblically, faith is our embrace of a word from God. In fact, I'd be very happy if anyone under this ministry would answer that question that way. How do you define faith? Faith is our embrace of a word from God. Faith, then, is our embrace of a word for God. And the elements of that faith, of biblical faith, are recognizing, realizing, and resting. That is to say, first we've got to understand what we're being called to believe. We've got to, we've got to recognize what the facts are, what the statement of truth is from God's Word. What is He saying to us? And then we've got to realize that it is in fact true. So you could say knowledge and belief. You could say understanding and belief. Those are other words for that. What is God saying to me? Do I understand it? Do I believe it to be true? But there's still a third element in biblical faith, and that is the element of resting. Do I trust that? Okay, I've never seen a boat before, but now you've told me that's a boat and explained me what a boat is for. I believe that if I get in that boat, yes, it would hold me. Now I'm going to get in the boat. You see, those are the three elements of what the Bible calls faith. But all of it rests on a word from God. That is the sine qua non, the, without which there's nothing. It centers on a word from God. So what's doubt? Well, doubt is the opposite or the absence of one or all of those things. If I don't understand God's word, then I don't really exercise faith, I doubt. If I don't believe it's true, well, then I don't really exercise faith, I doubt. And if I hold back and don't trust myself to it, well, I'm not really exercising faith. I'm still doubting, you see. So if you define and understand faith correctly, then you're ready to understand and define doubt correctly. So let's talk now about fig trees and mountains, because Jesus does. Not only what was done to the fig tree will you do, but instead, even if you tell a mountain to be picked up and fly into the sea, it'll do that. He says, well, okay, the fig tree then, well, that just happened. 
So that's fairly obvious. He's just done that, and he's telling them that if they have faith and don't doubt, they can do that same thing they just saw him do. But then he adds this about the mountain. Now, I, I would prick your memory to uh, recall uh, Matthew seventeen twenty, where Jesus said this same thing, but said if you have faith as a mustard seed, then you can tell a mountain to fly into the sea, and it will. We talked about what that meant there, and it, it means the same thing here. You could look it back at your notes, or it's all still online. What this is, is this is a hyperbole. This is a hyperbole that means to do an impossible thing. If you had faith and embraced a word from God to do this, then you could do this same thing to the fig tree, and you could do any impossible thing if God tells you to do that, if you have a word from God saying to do that. So I just remind you, if you say, well, but no, he says a mountain. I think it's about a mountain. Then I would remind you that it's been 2,000 years, and still nobody has ever done this. And, and I would point out to you that none of the faith teachers have done that either who, who provoke their followers with, with this promise, which, I mean, they've never done it. They've never told a hamburger to fly into the ocean and had it happen. They've never commanded their bank accounts to fill up without offerings and had it happen. They need people to send in the money. So, no, this is a hyperbole. And the apostles did, in fact, they didn't throw mountains into the sea, but did they go on to do impossible things? Did they? Yes, they did. They raised the dead. They gave sight to the blind. They healed the lame. They preached the gospel to dead people and had them come alive and become members of the family of God. They did a great many impossible things commanded by God. But what's, what's the focal point here? Now, I want to ask a question. I actually, I didn't see any commentary discuss this, but to me it's just, it stands out as the most obvious question about this. Why does Jesus say, you will do this, and you can say this? Is that what you'd expect him to say? It's not what I'd expect him to say at all. I'd expect him to say, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will ask God to do this same thing to the fig tree, and he'll do it. Or you you will ask God to throw a mountain into the ocean, and he'll do it. But he doesn't say that. He says, you If you have faith, you can do this and you can say that. What's the point of that? Well, I think, again, we understand it by stepping back and just remembering the context. They had just seen what? They had just seen leaders and followers who had no what? No faith. Therefore, they had no what? No fruit. Exactly right. They had no faith. They had no fruit. But they just saw their leader do something pretty spectacular. So what might they be thinking? Well, they might be thinking that when they get into impossible situations, they're going to be saying to themselves, boy, I sure wish Jesus was here. Because Jesus could do really amazing things. I wish he were here. Boy, oh boy. And then they just go on with their doing what seems right in their own eyes. And he's challenging to make sure that they don't do that, that they don't be like the leaders who have fond memories of things God did in years past, but themselves don't exercise any real faith in God. He wants them to know that they can do whatever God calls them to do if they simply believe God's Word. Because they are going to be leaders, and they are going to have impossible tasks, and they need not just to wish that Jesus was there with His power. 
they need to believe. And if they believe God's word to them, then they can do anything God calls them to do. Anything. But if they lack faith, they'll be just as fruitless as the scribes and the Pharisees, the buyers and the sellers in the temple. The key is, will they believe what God says to them? Then we see about faith and prayer in verse 22, and all things, as many as you may ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Well, so now verse 21 is specifically about being called to do impossible things by faith. And we'll look at that more closely in just a second. Uh, because I'm sure you're wondering, well, gee, what does that, how does that bear on me? I see how it bears on the apostles. How does it bear on me? We'll get to that in just a second. Verse 21, then, is about these impossible things that they would, in fact, go on to do. Verse 22 just applies generally to prayer. All things as many as you may ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Well, prayer requires faith. And what does faith rest on? What does it depend on? A word from God. I'll be looking at this more closely in a second, but you probably have a very strong bent just because this is our culture in another direction, but you've got to school your mind to think that. Whenever you think about faith, if we're not talking about a word of God as its object, then we're not talking about biblical faith. We're talking about something else. So prayer comes from faith, and faith rests on a word from God. So here's the question then. How do we have that word that these two verses both depend on? Well, I'm going to be very, very frank and upfront about it. The apostles had that word from God two ways. What were the two ways they had it? Well, one way is they had it the same way we do. Scripture. They had the word of God written. In fact, they were still writing it. But I digress a little bit. But they had Scripture, the same Scripture we have. But what's the second thing they had? They had a direct word from God. The apostles received direct revelation from God. And the prophets received direct revelation from God. And we don't have that. That's what they had. They had two ways. What do we have? We have one way. We have Scripture. God does not speak direct words to us apart from Scripture. God has said everything we need to hear from Him in Scripture, and Scripture alone. Why, I believe there's a Latin phrase that expresses that. Do you know two words in Latin? What are those two words? Sola Scriptura. That's exactly right. And this is where the rubber meets the road as to whether you really believe in Sola Scriptura. Are you still listening for a word that God whispers straight in your ear, or do you believe that God has said everything we need to hear in His Word? And the truth is the latter. So the apostles might have a word from God directly telling them to, direct, to do signs and wonders. We don't have words like that. And we have Scripture, which does not direct us to do signs and wonders, but it directs us to, to do a whole lot else. And we'll get into that as we talk about the application. So there's the meaning of these words. This is the understanding of, of what Jesus is saying. The whole point is he is existentially challenging them with their need to exercise faith, not just to be spectators and not just to look and say, oh my, that temple, what a mess. Oh my, that Jesus, what a wonder. (sighs) And then just go on with life, having learned nothing from either. Jesus is saying, no, learn from them, no faith, no fruit. Learn from me, faith, fruit. 
you believe the words of God, you can do anything God calls you to do, and you will have fruit to the glory of God. That's the point of these words. Now, the big question is, okay, so what do I do with them? And here's where I think I'm probably going to have to do two sermons on it, most likely, so I don't rush through some of it, because this is, this is the meat and potatoes of Christian living. This is something we must understand to live as Christians in this day. So then, Roman numeral two, applying what Jesus taught. And what's he talking about? Faith and prayer. What do you figure I want to talk about? That's the one. Faith and prayer. So first, let's talk about faith. How to apply what Jesus taught about faith. And I just want to be as clear about this as I can. So if anyone walks out still not understanding, it's going to be despite my very best efforts. God helping me. So let's first talk about what faith never is. What is faith never? Faith never is a feeling we whip up inside of ourselves, an internal project. In other words, faith is never something that starts with me thinking, identifying a goal and then convincing myself that I can get God to sign in on this goal. I, I think of it visually. It's never something that starts here and ends here. I really should have said here because this is just a muscle, but uh, your heart is your mind. It starts here and ends here. That is not biblical faith. So it's never a feeling we whip up inside of ourselves, an internal project. Faith is also never a self-made assurance that we will get what we want. I've I, I got this. I know it's a good thing. I know that it's right for me to have it, and I just need to believe God that he's going to do this. And so I, I apply my, my holy methods to twist God's arm and get him to deliver on what I've decided he needs to do for me. It's never that in Scripture. A third thing it never is, is it's never self-hypnotism or positive thinking. It's never a matter of, oh, I really doubt or I worry or I whatever, but I'm going to convince myself not to doubt and not to worry. I'm going to do this to myself. I'm going to come up with reasons myself why I shouldn't have those feelings, why instead I should have feelings of assurance and positivity and optimism. So there's three things faith never is. So let me give you a bad example of what faith never is, and yet you'll hear this all over the place, in and out of charismaticism. And if I asked for a show of hands who's heard this, I'm sure a lot of hands would go up, and I would never ask for a show of hands as to who has, in fact, said this. But here's the bad example. I'm just believing God for, and then some self-made-up goal. I am just believing God for a new car. I am just believing God for that job. I'm just believing God for a good job. I'm just believing God that she'll say yes when I ask her to marry me. I'm just believing God that he'll want to ask me out. I'm just believing God for a hundred other things to which you could just ask one question and pop that balloon. And here's the question. Has God promised you that in Scripture? And if the answer is no, then you're not believing God for that because he hasn't promised that to you. Now, that's fairly simple, isn't it? But so many don't see it. It's just basic Bible. 
It is not... Uh, look, the, the Israelites, called by God to go in and take Canaan, did they believe God that they would be able to do it? No. Should they have? Why? Because he said to. So then once they heard that they'd have to stay in the desert, they decided they would believe God that they could go in and take the land. Were they right in believing God that they could go in and take the land? This time? No. Because he said don't. And he said you'll die in the desert. So that's what believing God is. It's the essence of do you have a promise from God about that? If so, believe him. If not, don't call it believing God. Any more than I said, you know, I'm just, you know, Steve, I'm just believing you to take me out to salt grass for dinner every day this week. <laughs> well, Steve, good man that he is, hasn't promised any of those things, and I'd be way out of line believing him to deliver on a promise he never made. And so this is always the question, has God promised this? If, the, if he has, faith is the only appropriate re- response. If he's not... We're not talking about faith. So, what faith never is. Secondly, now let's talk about what faith always is. Get this and get this good. So I think I heard John MacArthur says, if you can get this into your head, you'll have the whole thing in a nutshell. You can get away with saying stuff like that. I didn't say it. I just quoted John MacArthur. So. So what is faith always? What faith always is, is our embrace of a word from God. That's it. I'd like to make it complicated, but I'd be unbiblical. It is our embrace of a word from God. And what does that embrace involve? It involves recognizing, realizing, and resting. Understanding what he says, believing it to be true, and putting our weight on it. Faith always is our embrace of a word from God. Okay, pastor, I get it, but it'd be so helpful if you could show some place in Scripture that illustrates that. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. We can see the prototype in Genesis chapter 15. So let's do. By which I mean, please take your Bible into your hand and turn to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, not too hard to find. After these things, this is after the battle with the kings to um, rescue Lot and after the encounter with Melchizedek. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear Abram, I'm a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. And Abram very candidly responds very honestly and transparently by saying, okay, you talk about reward, you had promised me a seed, and I still don't have any children. I'm going to have to make this employee of mine my heir. And so look at verse 4. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This one will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your seed be. Now, read this closely. He takes him outside, and he, have you ever seen stars where there are no city lights, and no headlights, and, and, and nothing? Oh, it's just the sky is a dazzling array of, of points of light, of various brilliance. 
And so he takes him out there and he says, look towards it. And, and Abram literally did. I mean, he literally took him outside and he said, literally, look at the stars. And don't miss the fact that the, 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 the narrative pauses there. He says, look and see if you can count them. And he pauses so he can start trying. That's why there's a pause in the text. So old Abram's going, okay, one, two, three, four. I don't know how how high he got, but then God steps in and says, so your seed shall be. Now, here's the crux here, verse six. And he believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now you see, This is why Abram is called the father of the faithful. This is why Galatians 3, pardon me, Galatians 3, 7 says that all of those who are of faith are sons of Abraham because he's the prototype. He's the model here. This is what faith is. And what is faith? Well, it's our embrace of a word from God. What was faith for Abram? Well, it was his embrace of a word from God. The word of God came to him, made a promise to him. Did he understand it? Does he know what seed is? Does he know what stars is? Does he know how to count? Okay. God says seeds, a seed like that's going to come out of your body. He understands. He believes it's true. And he embraces it. In fact, the Hebrew text of verse 6, uh, Hebrew scholar Meredith Klein says, it's really something like he said amen to Yahweh because the Hebrew uh, word for faith is where we get the word amen. He said amen to Yahweh. He believed what Yahweh said was true. He embraced it. And Yahweh counted it to him as righteousness. So you want to you say, okay, I'm vague on what all that stuff about faith was. Just remember this story. What happened in this story? God said a word to Abram and he embraced it. That's what faith is. Take away a word from God. We're not talking about faith. We're talking about something else. But biblically speaking, faith has a word of God as its object. That is the prototype. What is the product of faith? Well, a whole lot. But look at Hebrews 11.1 with me. Remind ourselves, we had several sermons people found helpful on this. They're online. Find them if you haven't heard them. I would encourage you. better way to use your time than a whole lot of other ways. Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And as we realized together when we studied that, that's not a definition of prayer. That's That's a description of the effects of prayer. This is not what prayer is. This is what prayer does. Faith, pardon me, what faith does. It's, it's not what faith is. It's what faith does. Faith brings assurance to us of things we hope for because God has promised them to us and a conviction about things that we don't see but God has told us about them. So how do I, though I I don't have these things in my possession yet and I don't see them, how do I have any conviction that they're true or any assurance? Faith does that. Faith does that. Faith takes a word from God and embraces it. And in that embrace, I have conviction and I have assurance. And so you see, it would not be right to define faith as trusting without proof or trusting without certainty, would it? Because I've got a word from God. Are God's words true? Are they certain? 
I dare say literally, there's nothing more certain than God's words. So it's not that. It is my embracing God's word, and that brings me certainty. And that brings me conviction and assurance. So faith isn't a feeling, but it is likely to affect our feelings. It is likely to bring us assurance. Uh, Romans 15, 13, note that down. That is really worth a long, long meditation. We've preached on that some, that we have hope and joy in believing. They bring these things to us. Faith brings those things to us as we embrace God's word. So the prototype is in Genesis 15. The product is described in Hebrews 11.1. What is the practice of living by and growing in faith? Well, this is crucial. Turn to John chapter 8, and we'll look at verses 31 and 32 again. You see, you look at some of these verses a lot. Yes, I do. I'd really like to make it part of people's memory so that when I say, you know exactly what it says already. John 8, 31 and 32. So there are Jews who had said they believed in Jesus. Turns out a few verses later, we find out they really didn't. But here's what he says to them. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And it's just, it's awful how often just those last five, six words are plucked out of context and used for a whole lot of things that they have nothing to do with. But in context, those words are the end of a chain. Yes, truth does set you free, but how do I know truth? Well, I I know truth by being a real disciple of Jesus. And what makes me a real disciple of Jesus? You tell me from these words. What makes me a real disciple of Jesus? Abiding in his word. Staying in his word. Not just, well, I, I heard his word 50 years ago and believed it, and now I don't really know it. I have a general, vague, formal idea, and that's really enough for me. No continuing in his word, staying in his word. Judas had that, and he left it in his past. No, this is a vital, experiential, day-after-day thing of continuing in his word and progressing in his word. So the key to a living, growing faith is a living, growing commitment to God's word and continuance in God's word. And that's what feeds faith, and that's what the Christian life is. The faith we have, we have resting on the Word of God. And to have that, we need to be growing in our knowledge of the Word of God. So I worked very hard and came up with a fifth P, the pressy. That means summary. (laughs) What is the summary of all this then? Well, we can see it in a very stark contrast between our idea in our culture versus the biblical concept of faith. And I think that this is really important, and I find it very helpful. Our idea of faith, listen, is all about what I feel and how deeply I feel it. So to a great many people, that's what faith is, and that's what this sermon should have been about. It's about what I feel and how deeply I feel it. But the biblical truth about faith is that it's all about what God has said and how deeply I embrace it. We think faith is all about what I feel and how deeply I feel it. 
The biblical truth is it's all about God's word and how deeply I embrace it. And that is it in a nutshell. And I just cannot overstress to you how important it is to understand that and how much difference it makes to the way we think, the way we live, to everything. So, a third thing, then, we've talked about what faith never is. We've talked about what faith always is. Now let's talk about what faith always does. What does faith always do? Bear fruit. What faith always does is bear fruit. Now Jesus clearly says this. I mean, he says exactly this in John chapter 15. Turn there. John chapter 15, and we're just going to look at parts within verses 1 and 7 through 17. Not every word of that section, though that would be time well spent. But in this section, you know, oh yes, you say that's about the vine and the branches. It is. It's about the vine, the branches, and what else? Fruit. How do I know it's about fruit? Well, the word fruit appears eight times in this section. The word love appears nine times. They're related then to Jesus' mind, definitely. Fruit and love. But this is about bearing fruit. Now, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine grower. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it so that it may bear more fruit. And look at what he says in verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So faith always bears fruit. Because faith is the means by which we are related to Christ. We're in Christ by faith. And the life of Christ flows into us in that relationship. And we bear fruit because of our relationship to him. But that faith is not a, oh yes, I exercised that 50 years ago and then I was done with it. That faith is, it may have begun 50 years ago. In my case, it began 50 years ago. (laughs) But it's something that needs to grow day by day by day. If it's real, it will. Real faith doesn't, isn't off and on. Real faith continues to grow. And real faith bears fruit. It does bear fruit. Jesus says that. It always does. You abide in me, you will bear fruit. So Jesus clearly says this, but I want to say even more, letter B, Jesus really means this. And I know a great many people who would, who would nod their heads, oh yes, oh yes, to what I just said. But then when the rubber meets the road, they don't think he really means it. And he really means it. Well, to see how much Jesus really means this, well, let me just digress a little bit. To see how much he really means it, how about we just go back to the story we're studying? What, what is the story we're studying? He came up to the capital of Israel and there was no fruit. And did he just say, oh, well, you know, you had such a great opportunity, but life goes on. Well, how did he treat the fig tree when he came in and it had no fruit? Oh, well, sometimes these things happen. No, he cursed it, which is a weird thing for him to do. Why did he do that? Because he really means that faith always bears fruit. 
Therefore, if there's no fruit, that's because there's no faith. Jesus really means it. Look at verses 5 and 6. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Does, not might, not could, does. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Well now, those are rather attention-arresting words, aren't they? They're supposed to be. They're supposed to be scary words. Jesus means them. And we would not honor Jesus by hurrying on to explain how these words don't really mean what they sound like they mean. They, they do. Now, it, the, the key, though, part of the key, I should say, is to understand what he means by, um, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away. What he's talking about is the same thing as in chapter 8. Just keep your place here and look back at chapter 8, because I think that this is, this is helpful. If we turn those words around, I, I think they'll give us the key to understanding chapter 15 better. So Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now he says, you're truly my disciples, or we could say genuine disciples. Well, if these things make a person a genuine disciple, then what is the person who doesn't abide in his word, therefore doesn't know the truth, therefore isn't set free? What's that person? A false disciple. Exactly right. A false disciple. Are you saying there's such a thing as a false disciple? Well, I'm echoing Jesus saying there is. Yes, I'm agreeing with Jesus. I've always found that's the best thing. I commend it to you. Uh, I agree with Jesus. What's the mark of a false disciple? Well, what's the start of the verse? Those Jews who had believed him. Uh, they made a profession of faith, and yet in a few verses, they're arguing with him. I mean, right away they're arguing with him. It doesn't sound like they believed him at all. Well, but they professed it. They, they thought for a while that they did. But time was the test of reality. And they didn't abide in Jesus' words. So they claimed to be disciples, but what showed whether they were or not? Whether they abide in his word or not? Whether they abode in his word or not? Whether they remained in his word or not? That's what shows the reality of it. So take that understanding back to John 15. Look again. What does he mean when he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away? He's talking about somebody who makes a profession of faith, may even make a show of faith as Judas did. All sorts of evidences that look like the person's a believer, but it turns out time reveals the reality. That person is not in Christ. That is a false disciple. And what is the mark of a false disciple? He doesn't bear fruit because the words of Jesus don't abide in him. Now, all that to say this, Jesus really means this. Faith always bears fruit. And if there's no fruit, that means there's no faith. So reflect on the fig tree. Jesus' ministry of ministering throughout Israel, including Jerusalem, although he may have focused in the north area, he came to Jerusalem. That counted. They needed to respond to that. They didn't. His coming and speaking to God's word to Jerusalem, that counted. They were meeting God when that happened. They responded by rejecting him. That counted, that encounter did. They were obligated to respond with faith, with with fruit-bearing faith. They were obligated to. Buyers and sellers in the temple alike 
were all obligated to respond in faith, but they did not, and they would be judged for it because Jesus really means that. Now, here's what I want to put across to you, and, and this, is, this is the point we're all coming, this all leads to. I want to do my best to impress on you, dear, dear friends, that every time we hear God's word, it's an encounter with God. No thunder, no clouds, but God's word. Every time we hear God's word, we have an encounter with God, and we are held accountable by how we respond. And it's deliberately that I say not whether we respond, because the truth is, we always respond. Whether we respond in faith, or rejection, or indifference, they're all responses. Right now, you're having an encounter with God as you hear God's Word preached. Right now. Every time we gather together, because every time we do, it's about God's Word, you have an encounter with God. Now, imagine this. Imagine somebody comes home, and uh, let's say it's a husband and wife, just to make a frame. And the wife asks the husband, what did you do today? And the husband says, oh, I had a meeting with God. The wife says, what did he say? And the husband says, oh, I don't know, stuff. Stuff? She says, what? God said stuff? You didn't write it down? You didn't take trouble to make sure you could remember what he said to you? Oh, no, that's not really my thing. That's not really my style. So your style is to forget what God says to you? Your style is just to let it slip through your fingers and just say, that's a, well, then that happened sort of thing? Can you find a recording of it? Well, yeah, I could if I wanted to. Is it very hard? No, it's not hard at all. It's, it's really easy. Why would you not want to hear and remember and do something about what God said to you? Well, I've really got a lot more important things to do. I've got things that interest me a whole lot more than that. Really, more important than hearing what God says to you. And yet every time we hear a word from God, that's exactly what's happening. We're having an encounter with God. So let's, remember, let's, let's back up a little bit. And the wife says, well, what did he say to you? Instead of saying, oh, stuff, the, the, the husband answers, oh, you know, it was a bunch of stuff about um, loving people and serving them, being involved with the church, stuff like that. Oh, okay, cool. What did you do? Oh, I came straight home, like I always do. You did? Well, who else was there? Oh, I don't know any of their names. You don't? How long have you been going there? Was this your first time? Oh, I've been going there for years. And you, you don't know the names, and you hear God talking to you about loving other people, and that's just a thing that happened? You think this doesn't matter? Well, I, I, guess, I guess I don't think it matters because I, I don't really think about it. But you're a believer, Oh, yes, I believe that Jesus died and rose again. I believe those two things happened. Okay, and what difference does that make in your life? Well, it means that after I finish getting what I want out of life, I go to heaven. That's what it means. Now, do you think I'm kidding? Well, I'm really not kidding. This is just what we see in Scripture, isn't it? Isn't this exactly what happened with Israel? They had an encounter with God and it wasn't a big deal. 
They finally decided and went their own way. God came in person, and it wasn't really a big deal. It was an inconvenience, but they, they got rid of it pretty quickly. What about professed Christians, though? That's totally different, right? Well, here's where we're going to end today. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5 with me. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about how to put this into practice in our prayer lives. And we'll get very specific about ways to do this. So Hebrews 5, this brilliant letter, this brilliant writer has talked to them about Melchizedek. And I'm going to paraphrase. He says, you know, I'd really like to say a lot more about Melchizedek, but I can't because you have just turned into such lazy listeners. I know I would look at you and see glazed eyes and wandering attention. I'd see people playing games on their phones, you know, in effect. But doesn't he say that? Look at this. He says, Melchizedek, verse 10, verse 11, concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Why? Because it's so complicated? He says, no, because you have become dull of hearing. The Greek word means lazy. You've become lazy in the way you hear. And now, Get his message here. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. What is he saying? He's saying that there was an expectation that they would grow and bear fruit. That as they repeatedly have heard the word of God, they should have been taking it in and learning it and keeping it, and practicing it, and growing in it. And by now, however long they'd been Christians, months, years, decades, by now, they should be able to explain the truth to other people. But they're still needing people to explain the truth, not just the truth, but the ABCs of the truth to them. And they're just lazy listeners. Now, this is a big deal. How big of a deal is it? Well, he says, for one thing, I can't explain this to you because you become so lazy. And then he says... In, in verse 12, you ought to be teachers, but you need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. Now, I want you to remember that he did not then write chapter 6. He just kept writing. So this is still him in the same frame of mind saying, therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not again laying a foundation. Verse 3, for this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who once having been enlightened and having tasted of the heavenly gift and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls in it and brings forth vegetation useful to those whose sake it is also tilled receive a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is unfit and close to being cursed and its end is to be burned. As we're reading that, doesn't your mind just kind of sparkle with all the things we've just been looking at in Scripture? Doesn't this make you think of the fig tree? It's just like that, right? If it doesn't, what does he say in verse uh, 7? Bring forth vegetation useful 
for those for whose sake it is also tilled. What's another weird word for useful vegetation? Fruit. <laughs> so if it doesn't bring forth fruit, it's going to be cursed and burned. <gasps> what does that sound like? It sounds just like the fig tree. What else does it sound like? It sounds just like the false, the false disciple in John 17. The branch that doesn't abide in Christ is thrown away and burned. What is it that made him think this, though? And here's the thing I just want to impress on you to, to spur you to growth, which is, after all, one of my jobs. What is it that makes him worry about that? The fact they're not growing. The fact that by now they ought to be producing fruit. They ought to be able to explain doctrine to people, but they, they still don't really have the basics grasped truly in the Word of God. And so that makes him not just think, well, you know, that's suboptimal. Or, okay, they're just carnal Christians, but that's okay because carnal Christians are okay. No, he says it makes me think they're not Christians at all. They made a display just like Judas did, but the heart of the matter is not in them. And they may be headed for it. Now he goes on to say, I have hope for better in you. But what worries him is their lack of progress. That's what, because, why? Because that's what faith is, and that's the Christian life. And the reality of the Christian life is showed how? Continue in my word. Continue in my word, abide in me. Continue in my word, know the truth and be set free. Abide in me, bear much fruit. That's what faith is about. That's what the Christian life is about. So next week, Lord willing, I will look much more closely with you at how that applies in our prayer life and how to put that into practice in very specific ways in our prayers. Or I could just put a whole sermon in the next three minutes, and I think I'll just probably do the first instead. So I hope you'll come back, and if you haven't heard last week's, you got a good chance to catch up with that. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what your word says, and we remind ourselves that in hearing it, we have just had an encounter with God, and we pray that you'll help us to hear in faith. We know this is the, this is the, the marrow of our relationship with you. You speak to us through your word. We hear, and in that way, we worship you. We know you. We grow in you. We bear fruit for you. And so we pray for the ministry of the Spirit in our hearts, doing just that, granting the seed of your word to go down deep, put down deep roots, and bear much fruit for your glory. And I pray for everyone here that everyone will hear this in a personal way, see how it applies personally, that the lost will see their need to cling to Christ as Savior, that the, the lazy will see their need to seek you for strength and for help and for life, and that all of us will bear greater fruit to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.